Welcome to 3 to 1, Chris. I appreciate you being here with me today. Oh, thanks, Bobby. It's good to be here. It's good to be here. I think we have a, a lot in common. It looks like we both gave up our vices in 2017. And I'm just really curious to hear about your journey and talk about like, what's your mission? You're, you're a podcaster. You have your own show. Um, I want to know about why that started. I want to know everything. So why don't you kick us off and, and maybe tell us a little of who you are in life? Yeah, cool. Well, um, who am I? That's a good question. I'm, I'm trying to work that out myself right now, interestingly enough. End of last year, I got diagnosed with ADHD. And that's something that I've obviously had since I was a child. And I've realized over the years that actually um, all these uneasy feelings I'm getting now, I used to drink on and then gamble on just to take them away. So now I'm trying to live a, a life without those things because obviously they're horrendous and do not help me one little bit, but they helped me escape what I'm kind of feeling these days. So that's kind of really interesting. But yeah, as a kid, you know, great upbringing, you know, good family, lovely mum and dad, two brothers. Um, we're all still really close. I've just been around my mum and dad's now. In fact, going through my monthly finances, which I've done every day since 20, well, not every day, but every month since 2017, when I finally stopped gambling and more than monthly originally, but every month now, I've just been doing that. And yeah, so really close family, really, really lovely. I have so many nice memories of being a youngster um, with my brothers and with my cousins and with family friends. But something started to change and it wasn't with those around me. It was all to do with me and how I felt inside. And I could never kind of put my finger on why I felt so different. Um, I couldn't articulate it, so I couldn't tell anybody about it. Um, and that lasted until I entered recovery, you know, when I was nearly 36. So I've never really been able to tell anybody how I felt. And even then it's taken time. I've tried to do it. And now I'm in a place where I'm much better at it. But I was just feeling like, um, like I didn't quite belong, that I didn't know who I was. And I, I always felt like I was going to let people down. Not that I was, but I had this real horrible feeling that if I wasn't perfect, if I didn't get everything 100% right, whether that be at school, whether that be in sport that I was doing, because I love playing sport, whether that be music, because um, I love playing guitar and singing and stuff. Um, and, you know, one of the stories I often tell is that as much as I love doing those things, I often used to, so for example, if I was playing a song on stage, quite often I wouldn't have learned the song. And the reason I wouldn't have learned the song properly is so that if I got it wrong, I couldn't blame myself because I would think, oh, well, you shouldn't have got it right because you didn't learn it. But the thought that I'd learn it properly and then messed something up, oh, that, that messed with my head. That was crazy. So I found that really difficult. And then there was the kind of fitting in with friends. Um, and I've still got the same friends now that I had uh, at senior school. You know, we've got a really good tight group of friends. It's lovely. But they're only seeing me now for who I really am, which is really weird to say, you know, having known them from the age of 11 and I'm now 40 and they're all the same. And that's because I didn't feel comfortable in any situation. So I had to put a mask on. And that started for me as a youngster at the age of four. Actually, I remember before I was 14, I went through quite a long time where I didn't leave my house other than for school. So I wouldn't go out. And so I'd leave my house for like football because I was in a football team. I'd leave my house to go to school. But there was a period where I would not go out and see any of my friends because I didn't feel comfortable. I just didn't feel comfortable in their company. I didn't feel comfortable in the girls' company who were coming out of us as well. So I was at an all-boys school. There was a couple of all-girls' school near us, and quite often, you know, they'd come out of us. I felt so uncomfortable. 
until I got to a 14, uh, it was my 14th birthday the same day, actually, but I went to somebody else's birthday party, two of my friends took some drinks with me, and there we went, beautiful, had some drinks, and suddenly I started to feel like I could fit in. Um, and this was all in my mind, because obviously people wanted to be my friend, people, you know, they liked me, but all this was from, you know, it was internal, and that's the way it's always been for me, feeling uncomfortable, trying to feel comfortable in situations meant needing to drink alcohol, um, and then also kind of get through things. I'm noticing this at the moment. When I'm at work, I find it very hard to start tasks and stuff. It was like this when I was younger. You know, when I was in the sixth form and stuff, I started to drink a lot. Actually, I was doing that to help me work. And I've done that through all my work years as well. I would drink because it gave me the courage to get over. It might only feel like a little mound to get over and start this piece of work. And this all comes with ADHD. But I realized if I started to drink, I could then do the work. And very often my work was done when others weren't around, so nobody could see me. Because even then, when I'm doing my own work, I wouldn't want people to see that I might make a mistake. I couldn't answer phone calls in front of people. All you know, crazy stuff, which I think, well, wow, that's amazing. Like nowadays, I do still feel uncomfortable answering a phone in front of people, but I'll take a deep breath and I'll do it. And you know, normally, you know, there's nothing to worry about. It's just a phone call. But in my mind, it feels really, really tough. And I drank all through my twenties and my. And I got to the age of 30 and it had been helping me. It had been helping. I mean, it's not been helping me in most ways. You know, it was, it was sending me down this, the wrong side of a mountain. But for me personally, it helped me. I, I was thinking I'm escaping this. I don't feel as uncomfortable. So this must be all right. But do you know what? I started feeling really uncomfortable again, really, really uncomfortable. And that's when I found gambling. I didn't really find it on purpose. I wasn't looking for it. It was something that's such a normal thing in our society here. People at work would be doing things like lotteries or sweepstakes, and I started to take part. And then after that, you know, I started gambling on some football matches. Um, so like soccer in the UK, or soccer over there for you guys, but, you know, football over here, Premier League football, um, really, at the time. Um, and I downloaded a, a betting app, Bet365, because, you know, I kept seeing it on the telly. It was telling me to, you know, it's more, you know, I was hearing things like it means more when there's money on it, you know bit of enjoyment you know I mean you know it's just exciting do it and I thought is it they keep telling me to do it so okay I will and I downloaded an app and I put a bet on the outcome of a football game as planned and that should have been it but very quickly very very quickly I realized do you know what that's changed how I felt that's done what the alcohol used to do I didn't stop drinking alcohol this time I just added the gambling on top Um, and it did change how I felt it did change and it took me out of this outside world that I was unable to cope with when my head's all over the place. I often talk about my head being like a, a computer or a laptop with lots and lots of different tabs being open, but I can't stick to one tab and I can't see them all on the same screen. So I flitter from one thing to the other and it's really uncomfortable. But you know what? Once I found online gambling apps, as much as I hated them, suddenly it was something that I could just just focus on. I couldn't take my attention away from it. So actually, in many respects, I felt really comfortable in that position, even though it wasn't good for me. It made me feel more relaxed for a period, for a period of time. But, you know, then came the not just gambling on the outcome of football games. You know, within weeks, I'm gambling on in-play football, football around the world, dogs, horse racing, virtual dogs, virtual horses, virtual car races, you name it, I was doing it. Then I was cross-sold products by the by the operators. So, you know, I've only got on there to place a football bet, yet they're asking me to go and play roulette and they'll give me free spins, you know, this kind of stuff. And 
And it seemed like, all right, you're offering me something for free, I'll do it. I didn't really appreciate the dangers uh, that, that, that were there. I didn't realise how harmed I could be through gambling. So, you know, it took a number of years. It took kind of, I only gambled for nearly six years. You know, well, it wasn't a huge amount of time, but it felt like a horrendous, horrible, horrible existence while I was drinking and gambling. Um, crikey, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just so, so terrible, such a quick decline. I managed, I really, it was in binges for me. There were times when I did manage to stop, but didn't ever go and really find recovery until 2017. Same, you know, same as you, we both stopped, but that's when I went and found my recovery rather than just trying to stop and thinking I can. And I was doing lots of the right things for, for the last two and a half years. I was, you know, my dad had my money. My dad had access to my accounts. My dad was doing various things. I mean, my wife was, she knew everything as well, but it got to a place where I'd start to feel uncomfortable. And then I'd end up going down the gambling route again. And for me, in 2015, it was probably about halfway through 2015, I self-referred myself to the Problem Gambling Clinic in London. And the reason I did that was because I was in a mess, firstly. Mind you, nowhere near as much of a mess as I was at the end of 2017. But I was in a place where I thought, well, my family have found out twice before that I've been gambling and they've helped me. How have I got to this place again? I need to, do, I need to show them that I'm going to stop. But I still didn't really believe I had an, an addiction. I thought this was a terrible habit that could be broken. So I self-referred myself to this clinic. People could start to see that I was getting some help, which was brilliant. So everybody's like, good, this, this is the start. Problem for me was with the way I was, had the de- alcohol dependence as well as the, the gambling side of things, I couldn't stop drinking. I didn't plan to stop drinking. I didn't want to stop drinking at that point because drink, as much as it was now not helping me, was that thing that helped me at that party when I was 14. It was that thing that I thought was the, it was the substance that was getting me through life. Not making my life fantastic, but just making it bearable, just so that I was able to to get up in the morning and function. I mean, I wasn't functioning, but, you know, it makes me laugh when people talk about functioning alcoholics and stuff like that. Crikey, you know, I really wasn't functioning very well, but I used to call myself a functioning alcoholic, um, which obviously isn't the case. It was was really, really hard, but I couldn't stop drinking in 2015. um, And that's why when it got to 2017, uh, it was was the most horrendous year of my life. Um, a, A year which now I'm glad I've lived through because I'm here doing this and I understand who I am but it was so hard it was so so hard the start of the year taking out a new mortgage so me and my ex-wife as she is now we were doing up the house so I wasn't taking out money for gambling reasons I was taking out money to get the house redone get an extension you know set family up for the future Um, I did have a lot of gambling debt but it was to pay to my dad rather than banks so when I went to apply for the mortgage nobody could see the huge debt that I had but my dad was comfortable that I wasn't paying back because we had our had our agreement and he knew that I'd been to the problem gambling clinic so I thought everything was okay but when it got to that place at the start of that year when I suddenly got that money the work started happening in the house I suddenly felt like I don't deserve this and this is something I've noticed as well I've always been somebody who like sabotages myself when I'm in a good place so this is one of those things I think about regularly now because I deserve to be in a good place. I never used to think that I did, but I always have to be very careful now just to say, do you know what, Chris, when things are good, you really have to watch yourself and you need to be telling people how you feel. That's so important. So yeah, 2017 kicked off with a, kicked off with what 
appeared to everybody else as a great year and it ended up with me um, nearly taking my life. You know, I had the plan in place. I was in mid, I hadn't gambled until um, maybe March that year, started going to some bookmakers again. I'd, I'd banned myself from land-based casinos in 2015, so I couldn't go to them. So it was online bookies. Uh, it was land-based bookies, online casinos. But, you know, I had two massive episodes with casinos that year. The first one was um, May, June time. It was after I saw a couple of celebrities on the TV, Ant and Deck, huge in the UK. Uh, not that I'm massive fans of them or anything like that, but they were they were there on the TV advertising a particular a particular um, game on uh, 32 Red it was, and they had a slot game. So I went on there, won a bit of money on that. And then for the next couple of months, I lost an unbelievable amount of money with 32 Red. I won an unbelievable amount, tried, tried to withdraw it, but thought, how am I going to tell everybody that I've won this life-changing money when I'm not allowed to be gambling? Even if I take this out, I'm going to lose everything with regards to family and stuff. So I put, I had this plan in my head, which was right, put half the money in an account for your son, half of an account in uh, half the money in an account for your daughter. And in six years time, tell everybody you had a bad day, you made a mistake, but you happened to put all this money and everything's going to be fine. But, you know, I could, I could reverse that withdrawal online for the next 24 hours and it was just playing on my mind the whole time. So I reversed it and lost it, um, as you do. But then, you know, the next, as the weeks went on, I ended up having breakdown, being in hospital, um, just in a terrible, terrible place. And, and in 2017, in October 2017 was when I had the, I was with a, casu- a casino called Casumo, literally gambled with them for four days, only really gambled for three days, to be honest, and lost a year's wages in those three days, was planning to end my life. Because I'd won so much money earlier in the year, I'd thought to myself, do you know what? I need a way out. And the only way I can think is to, is to end my life. I can't think of another way. My family would be better off without me, but they need some, they need some support when I'm gone. They need some money. I looked at my pension scheme. And just in my head, I was like, well, I can see what they would pay you, my wife, but are they going to do that if I take my own life? Now, I, I, this kept going through my head. If I take my own life, will they pay that? So my plan was to win the amount that they were going to pay out. And as that amount was only double what I'd won earlier in the year, I mean, don't get me wrong, that would have made it a huge amount of money. But in my mind, it's just like, oh, it's just double. I've done it once. I can do it again. Just, just got to double it then. Um, it seemed like the thing to do. But that last night, you know, I'd spent all of the money for the builders I'd gone to a bank, I'd taken out the biggest loan a bank could give me at about one o'clock in the morning, you know, no real, it was just online checks. And there it was, £25,000 in my bank account, and off I went and put 22000 of that into the online casino in the next two hours and 11 minutes, and no interventions or anything. But you know what? I'm Obviously, I'm glad I lost that money that night. It's a shame they allowed me to take that extra money out, and it's horrendous that the casino allowed me to gamble like that when they should have intervened. They should have been trying to protect me. They don't, but they're supposed to, but they don't. And um, but I'm very thankful, of course, because if I had won that money, I would have ended my life. It was, you know, I had the plan. I was at my sister-in-law's. Um, my wife was upstairs with the children, and I planned to do it there because, well, she wouldn't be alone. She wouldn't be alone. And um, But once I lost the money, the, the thought that came into my head was, well, what are you going to do now? Are you going to end it? Because you haven't actually achieved your plan. Because if you end it, they've got nothing. They might be better off without you, but they've got nothing. You've left them nothing. And it was at that point that it was just, I've, I've got to do something. And that from that point was, 
when I found recovery, you know, t- that was a Sunday. The Monday I got found out. I had planned to go out for my final booze up with a friend on the Monday, but as I was leaving, my wife said, Have you, you've done it again. You've done it again. And I was, of course, I couldn't lie at that point. I was like, yeah, I have. So I got marched around to my parents. My niece was there looking after our children at our house and, you know, obviously felt terrible again. But I, I was where I thought I deserved to be. That was the sad thing. The gambling kept happening because I felt like I, felt like I deserved to be down in that place, but never took into account what it meant to everybody else and the harm that I was causing my wife, my children, my parents, my brothers. I couldn't see it. I can see it now and I can see what's happened. And I'm so lucky to still have their support. But, you know, it was as of that day when I went around to my parents, my mum said, no, he's different this time. He is different. I can tell. And she was right. And that was because I knew that the drink had to stop as well as the gambling. That was the first time I thought drinks ending. And it was that later that week, I went to Gamblers Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous um, on a Thursday and Friday night that week. And I haven't looked back since, really. Wow. I have so many notes. Thank you very much for sharing all of that. Um, there, there's so many interesting facts. I'm going to try to go in order to your story that you shared. So the ADHD, that's, that's a big deal. And I'm not a doctor or scientist or any of those things, but it, there seems to be a reoccurring theme with that. So essentially, if I understand right, like the alcohol was numbing kind of the side effects of that. Is that the right way to frame it? Yeah, totally. I think that was what it was. I felt uneasy all the time. I felt hyperactive. I felt uneasy. I felt like I couldn't achieve anything. I felt, and that's just how I felt. And, and drinking the alcohol dampened that. And it made me feel like I was kind of comfortable in situations that I wasn't before. It made my head slow down a bit, I think. Well, I mean, I couldn't remember most of it, so it must have been running very slow. But, but yeah, so that is kind of what it did. It slowed it all down. Um, but interestingly, it was when I got to the gambling that actually I now realised that, that that was helpful is the wrong word because it wasn't helpful. But, but what I mean is it just gave me something to focus on because with ADHD, I'm trying to focus on so many different things all the time. You know, you know what a casino is built like? You know, it's so, it's so much there to get your attention. Or if I'm playing a slot game and everything is flashing and that, everything else just disappears. And for somebody with ADHD, it, it helped me to focus and I was focusing on something which was harmful and bad. I'd love to find something which is good for me, but I can focus on in the same way. Because, you know, I, I did notice that all the sound, all the difficulty, all the worry disappeared when I was in those situations. But it was a thousand times worse whenever I came out of them, of course. So how did you find out? Do you mind me asking you that? Because I have a feeling you're not alone in that being part of what makes people drink or use or gamble or or suffer from addiction because they're trying to fix themselves yeah totally totally I mean I've realized it uh where I've been at home so much during COVID where I've not been at work at all um I've been working at home and as much as I used to love working at home like one day a week was what I used to do I used to be able to really focus on that day but because I've lost all of the um I kind of lost all that structure in my life and I think I need that structure. So once I lost a lot of that structure, it started to make things really difficult. And that's when I find like couldn't concentrate on things. So my mind would be all over the place. Whereas when I went to work, I knew I was there 
for a reason. You know, I had to work or I had a meeting at this time and it was face to face with somebody. It's very different to kind of sitting at home on the meeting, but my mind being somewhere else and kind of listening to the washing machine. Oh, that's just gone off. I need to go and take that out in a minute. I, I, you know, I, I was just, there was just too much going on. Um, but I look back to being a child because uh, I had to talk to a psychiatrist about all this stuff, you know, so he, he diagnosed me recently. But I had to think back when I went back, to, I had to think back to being at school. And my mum spoke to me about when I went into the sixth form. So in the UK, at like 17 to 18, 16, 17, 18, you go from like your senior schools, we call it, into either college or sixth form. So I was going into the sixth form. And my days changed a lot. So whereas the earlier years, it was structured every hour. When it got to this time, because I chose like three subjects, I would have lessons, but lots of free time as well. And I just couldn't manage anything. And one of the teachers spoke to my mum about how terrible my planning was. And she said, well, has it always been like this? They said, well, yeah, but, you know, it was all right because he used to have lessons all the time. And she said, but why haven't you brought this to our attention before? But nobody really thought about it. And all they said was, look, he's in sixth form now. He needs to sort it out. He needs to sort it out. Problem is, problem is I couldn't sort it out. And I've realised now I couldn't sort it out because I've got ADHD. And you have that since you're a child, but you only find out about it. Well, if you're lucky, you find out about it as a child. So my son, who's 12, we're getting him checked now because he's very similar to me. He's got autism and Tourette's as well, and I'm sure he's got ADHD. But nobody knew with me. And once I then started the drinking, I kind of hid it. So hid it even more. Um, yeah, it's a strange thing to have only found out now and starting to realise why some of these things that I've done to self, self-medicate self really in the past um, have got me to where I am. It's, it's a strange thing because if I'd, if I'd realised as a child and got the right medication, got the right strategies in place, I wonder where my life would have gone. Um, but, you know, I'm glad that I'm here today because, you know, I, I feel like having gone through my really horrible journey has got me to a place where I like who I am and struggle to, to manage myself day to day but I'm going to get there and it's nice to be able to talk to others. Cause you know, what I know now is that I didn't know what this felt like until I realized I had it, even though I had it, but I know it's not an isolated case. There are so many of us out there with, you know, who are, you know, we're not neurotypical, you know, we're different and that's cool. That's great. Um, but yeah, you're right. With regards to gambling, I've spoken to quite a lot of people who, who have said, Oh yeah, ADHD, me too. I've got that. Yeah. Or bipolar, that's another one. Yeah, and there's there's people in my life that have have swung the other way too with the drugs from having that as a symptom. So that's why it's kind of a button for me. And what I find interesting about your story, um, and I don't know if this is because of the ADHD, and I'm not sure if you've come across this in your journey, but whether it's the, the coaches or the therapists or just talking to different people, it seems like trauma induces addiction, right? I'm almost coming to believe that that's for everyone. Again, no credentials. I just, you know, who I'm exposed to and what I'm thinking. So I found it really interesting that you talked about your family and what a nice um, dynamic it was. And like, there was nothing to draw out of that from a, from a trauma or a, you know, when you were talking, I was like, oh yeah, my biological father abandoned me. So that was my excuse. And you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm having a disconnect other than the ADHD of like, 
Cause I just feel like it's not dumb luck that we end up in addiction. It's, it's just not. No, definitely, definitely. But you know what? You just said something interesting there to me. And because I said about me trying to always be perfect or I couldn't handle it. Sometimes I wonder if like, because I do feel like my childhood was perfect. Maybe if it wasn't, would I have felt the need to be so perfect? So, you know, lots of time people talk about the difficulties in their childhood. Maybe because mine was so good, I felt like I had so much to live up to, um, which actually I didn't. It was something I put on myself. But from seeing that people around me were doing so well and being so kind to each other all the time, you know, and I don't know if that played an element on it as well. You know, how can I live up to this? How can I do what they're doing? How can I be this nice? I still think about it now with my dad. My dad's amazing. Love my dad to bits. And he's always there helping. I think, how can I, how can I be like my dad? But I don't need to be like my dad. I just need to be me, you know, but that was the, that was the thing that was difficult for me, I think, to come to understand. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing that. And you said something about going on the journey and you've said a couple of times, like you're grateful that you went on the journey because now you know who you are and you're also helping people um, through your show, through your, you know, energy and bravery coming out in front. And I love, love, love and respect the folks out there that are raising their hand to talk about it. You brought up some things that were really um it kind of made my stomach flip when you're like, well, the television was telling me to go gamble. And like, it just kept repeating. And when I was there, I told you before we started recording, we went and I took photos of it. Well, first off, I get off the plane and there's slot machines in the airport um, when I land in the UK. But then on Isle of Wight, there was this arcade. And inside the arcade were slot machines. And the only precaution, there was one with like sliding doors. Um, but in one of them, it was actually commingled. Like the slot machines were on the perimeter. And all it was, was this little freaking sticker, you know, with the little X, if you're under 18, are you kidding me? So if you don't mind, um, cause in the U S like we just had New York, just got really legal with sports betting. And they talked about it being like $117 million gambled in three weeks. So they're on track for billions of dollars in damage. And my perception of the UK is that you guys were almost ahead of us with online betting. Um, there's solutions out there. You know, I, I've talked to a few other um, gamblers in the UK. So now if you could take us kind of on your recovery journey, why did you start the podcast? What do you think about gambling in the UK, anything that I might've just said. Um, yeah. Wicked. yeah, yeah. Well, the podcast. Um, so when did that start? April, 2020, we started the All Bets Are Off podcast. And um, it came about because we met on Twitter. Um, you know, when we first put out our first episode, we'd, we'd never met in person or anything, you know, just a few online calls and came up with um, some ideas for some episodes. And uh, Ryan, who does it with me, well, one of the people he, he had the idea to set it up and he'd only just entered recovery actually and at the time he wasn't called Ryan he was well he was called Ryan but not on Twitter he was called at ruined gambler um, and he put a tweet out it just said would anybody like to hear like, like to listen to a new UK based podcast on gambling addiction recovery I was like yeah sounds good so I sent him a message back to say it sounded good and then kind of the next day he sent me a message to say oh brilliant well, would you like to co-host it please and I was like yeah, why not? Why not? Um, but the reason I was able to was because earlier that year, 
which at this point I was just over two years into recovery. Um, I told my work that I had, you know, the issues with gambling and the issues with drink, which when I first went to GA and AA two years before, I told everybody everything, but I didn't tell my work. I just couldn't bring myself to tell my work. Um, but once I did, all oh my life, my world opened up, you know, because suddenly I could talk freely, go and do things I wanted to do, you know, like speak on the radio if people asked me to. I could do all that stuff, which I couldn't do, I couldn't do before. Um, so yeah, set up all bets are off with Ryan and Kish and Kelly. Um, Kelly uh, left near the end of season one, just you know, doing other stuff. But then we got Tracy coming on board. And what I loved about Tracy coming in was her husband Ray um suffered harm for his own gambling so she was an affected other still is an affected other but the point was when he started his recovery he started and listened to our podcast and they listened to it together and she's one of the first people who sent us a message to say how helpful it had been so to bring her in uh, from season two to be one of the co-hosts was just like incredible it was amazing like we wanted to build a community around the podcast so to have somebody come in and co-present who'd listened to it with their husband as he was coming into recovery. It was just, it was just a wonderful thing, really. It was just, it was just amazing. So yeah, we'd planned to do this podcast like every other week and um, see how it went. But because it was COVID, we decided we'd do it every week. Um, we did, tw- we've done, what we, we're recording our fifth season now. So we've got four seasons already that are 12 episodes long each season. Although the first one is actually 13 episodes, but Ryan doesn't like odd numbers. So we called it 12A and 12B at the end, I think, something like that, or part one and part two, but it's really 13. (laughs) Um, And yeah, we're starting to record season five at the moment. Um, And yeah, we try and talk about lots of different um, topics on it, really. So we didn't just want to talk about people coming on talking about their recovery although that is of course a really important part but we wanted to um, think about um, maybe subjects that aren't spoken about so often so we had women's gambling a few times you know we've got a woman who who co-hosts anyway but we wanted to make sure we brought we spoke about women and two women on the show we wanted to um, include like the LBH I can't say the word uh, LB do you know what I mean oh yes LBGTQ Plus, <laughs> yeah, we've got one of them episodes as well. We've got one for students. We've got an international episode. Um, crikey, I, you know, we've got lots of different stuff. And the idea was to have different types of topics that people could just come and dip in as of when they wanted to, um, to whatever they wanted to. They don't have to come and listen to it all, do you know what I mean? It was like, is there something which is interesting to a particular person? Come in and listen to it. Now, we've got quite a few about affected others as well which is wonderful. So people can come who've never gambled themselves necessarily, but they've been harmed by partners gambling or brothers or sisters or a loved, you know, any kind of loved one and listen to that. And, and it's really, it's really great. That's some of my favorite episodes because they help us as the um, recovering gamblers really understand what, what was happening, what's happening out there and, and what we did um, and the harm we caused. But, you know, I've also come to realize that, and I take responsibility for the things that I did but equally, I do know that, you know, the gambling industry, they design addictive products, um, yet they don't take any responsibility for any of it and always push the onus upon the individual. And I think this comes to some of the stuff you were talking about, about over in the UK at the moment. So we've got a Gambling Act review going on um, because our um, regulation was put in place in 2005. 
um, and it's out of date really and it's you know it's just not fit for purpose so going through that now and I've given evidence and my organization which we'll talk about in a minute the gambling education network uh, which we set up after all bets are off um, we've given evidence lots of other people have given evidence and you know at some point I think April time this year hopefully but hopefully sooner but I don't think it will be um, they're going to put out a white paper like talking about what changes they think should be made to the regulations because currently it's self-regulated really in this country and you can't trust the gambling industry to self-regulate you know I know this through my own experiences but also from talking to other people um, and it's just a real worry it's just a real worry like things like um 60% of their um, profit comes from 5% of gamblers and it, you know it gets even higher something like I can't remember the exact figure something like 75 to 85% if you just look at online gambling so it, it's it's crazy it's crazy and and it's it's not fair there's no ombudsman in this country so you know if things go wrong uh, if you haven't been looked after by the organization you're gambling with you've got no way to go back to them and say you didn't act in the way you should um, like I say, it's all about putting the onus on the people. You must do this responsibly, yet we're giving you an addictive product. And like you say, you're going out at the seaside and you're actually seeing like slot machines in places where children are. You're seeing in sports games. Um, so, you know, in football in the UK, it's, it's not the only sport, but the reason I say football is because it's where I placed my first bet. And it was because of the advertising around football, but it isn't just on the TV. Most of it's online. There's more spent online than on TV. It's on the radio. But once you get into the sports stadiums, it's everywhere. It's on the chests of players. It's and, and the children can't wear those shirts. They're not allowed to wear them. They're only allowed to wear them if they don't have it on. So for the children's shirts, they take the sponsor off if they've got a gambling sponsor, that team. But, you know, who? if you take it off a kid's top, what difference did it make? It's the adult looking at the kid's top. They're looking at the adult top, so they're seeing it anyway. But it's it's ridiculous that they can't wear the same tops as their heroes. But it's everywhere. It's on the billboards. It's on uh, the manager's jackets. It's on steps in the states. Everywhere, everywhere you look, you'll see it. And it makes it so normal. And the advertising is so dangerous. It's on. It's on during the daytime as well. You know, it's twenty four hours a day. You'll see Bingo adverts during the daytime. You'll see football adverts around football. Things like you know, there's been lots of. Um, Darts and snooker on recent that I've been watching, and they always got loads of gambling associated with them as well. And I'm not here to say gambling shouldn't exist, but I am here to say, you know, in my mind, there's a huge public health problem here. People are getting harmed by gambling. You think of the children of a gambler. And in fact, you know, this is a big thing that um, I like to talk about is the fact that the harm runs on the continuum. So when you hear industry talk about the small amount, small amount of people who are I don't like the term problem gamblers. Well, actually, it's not a small amount of people, because actually, if you look below that, there's a lot of people suffering harm, whether it's a lower or a more medium risk, they're still suffering harm. And they're doing things like maybe their kids are standing outside of bookmakers rather than being taken home from school. Maybe their kids aren't getting three meals a day, they're only getting two because you know, money's gone into a fixed odds betting terminal, all this kind of stuff. And that isn't considered. And that's why this is like a, a whole population issue. This is like a population health issue. Um, and yeah, it it's just worries me. You know, it worries me for the poor children who wake, who wake up in the morning and think, ah, football and gambling, they're one of the same thing when they're not one of the same thing. And, you know, we haven't got things right in the UK, but I, you know, 
we've got lots to do, but I wish the states would kind of look at what we've got wrong and try and get it right. And, you know, I mean, that's a huge worry for you guys, I'm sure. And, but there's going to be so much harm. We're a tiny little island, you know, and size of size of you and all your states, you know. Well, we have a lot of opportunity and I won't pretend to understand politics. I just know that I don't like how each state can have their own rules. So that's part of what, um, part of my mission. This is, this is my theory. I know this is your show, but I'll share this with you so that you kind of understand where I'm going. I want all the states to have the same kind of rules about the gambling establishments, putting aside funds for recovery. And when I went into rehab, the state I was living in had a program so I could get, I could get sponsored to go to treatment. I have friends that lived in seats that didn't have those programs. Now think about it. A gambling ready, gambler ready to go to treatment doesn't have a lot of funds. Nobody's winning and decides they want to go to treatment. It just doesn't happen. So I'd like to see some consistency across the states on that. And my vision to get there is I think I need money and influence. I don't think it can be done lobbying and all this crazy stuff. So that's part of my mission is um, building recovery playgrounds, connecting with people that are advocating in the community and trying to get it right in the States. So having relationships and honest communications, like it's so funny. I used to work in retail, right? And if there was two flower shops, like we just had Valentine's day, two flower shops, they might not be having a conversation like you and I are having because they view each other as competition. Well, mm -hmm. I view you as another podcaster, as an ally, right? And we're working towards the same purpose. So that's why I'm so honored to have you on the show. I appreciate what you're doing. The, you, you gave me an aha that I should probably, I hadn't thought about breaking it down for the different demographics, like specific shows to target different things. So I like that. That might be an opportunity for me to try to do a better job. Um, I want to go back. I want to talk about the kids, but I also want to go back. This is one of my fundamental beliefs in recovery. And most people early on can't get there. But what you said about telling your work, hmm. can you, can you kind of expand on that a little? What prompted you to do it? How was the reaction? Like, what did it look like after? Like, talk to us about that. Yeah. So for me, I mean, because of the job that I do, I work with suppliers. So I thought immediately, oh my God, if I tell them that I'm a gambler in recovery, they're going to think I'm going to be colluding with suppliers and, and all this stuff, which is why I didn't tell them for two years. But but now when I look back, and it was because I wanted to start doing more. So I'd been in recovery for two years. And, you know, I was loving going to GA meetings, loving AA meetings. I still do them both weekly now. But I wanted more. And I started blogging and sharing those blogs, but not under my real name. And then I was like, oh, actually, what it was, I was listening to a BBC podcast called um, Hooked, the, the Unexpected Addicts. It's a w wicked podcast. Um, somebody called, or two girls, Melissa and Jade, one's in recovery from alcohol, one's in recovery from drug um, addiction and they put out this podcast and it's amazing and I was just following it and I was putting some stuff on Twitter about how much I liked it and then I got a message from them to say we're doing one episode about people who we've interacted with would you like to come on 
was like, yeah, go on then. But I hadn't told work at this point. So I was like, oh, we'll have to use a, a different name. And I think I came up with Cyril or something. And they were like, that's ridiculous. Like, you should just use the name Chris because there's a lot of Chris's out there. And I was like, you're right, you know, you're right. But I got on there and I did that podcast and I was like, that was good. I liked being able to talk about my experiences. And I think I need to be able to do this to, to try and help myself and help others. Uh, so it was after that I started to think about it a lot more. And then a couple of months after that, I met a guy called James Grimes. Now, James Grimes over here, he leads what's called The Big Step. He started something called The Big Step. And that is um, a project where, and I, I'm part of it, we walk around from different um, football clubs. So we'll go to football clubs. And the idea is to ask them to take gambling, advertising out of football. So it's a really big thing. They were all in uh, Scotland last weekend and walked to 10 different clubs, 60 miles in three days, um, got lots of support, brilliant stuff. Unfortunately, I couldn't do that one. But I met James. And he was like, oh, the TV are here. Do you want to have a chat with me on the TV? I was like, I can't, not told my work. And I was like, do you know what? I love what he's doing. And so the combination of the podcast that I did with the BBC and meeting James was like, I've got to tell them. If I don't tell them, I'm not going to be able to move on, do what I want to do. So I then I spoke to my boss. We couldn't get a meeting room. So we went into this little phone booth, which is <laughs> tiny. And I told him and he was he just went, oh, yeah, I can understand why you probably wouldn't want to tell us that. But um, don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> and that was it. I was like, wow. And I look back at it now and think, do you know what? Like me telling them made it safer for them and safer for me. I'd never thought about it till that point. Um, but then after that, I told his boss and then her boss. So then the, the whole head of the team knew it. I sent out an email to everybody in the team to say that this is me. This is what I've been going through. If you've got any Think, you know, if you're having tough times at the moment, feel free to chat to me because this is what I've been through. And on that day, I got a handful of people sent me an email back within that my team of it was like 50 same people. And so you've got to think like maybe like 10% emailed me back with like something that they didn't want to talk to other people about. And because I've been in recovery, you know, no, I don't, I'm not going to talk about what they told me. Do you know what I mean? And it was amazing. And so that was the start. And then it was after I'd done that, I was like, right, that's it. I can now do what I like. And when people got in touch with me and asked me, would you like to do, you know, start a podcast or would you like to come and speak to our bank about issues or, you know, could we write a piece on you? It's like, yeah, of course, absolutely. If this is going to help people, then yes. Um, So yeah, it's the best decision I made. It really, really was. I love that. It's so, it's so funny whether we're talking about um, the stories you were telling yourself as a child and a teenager, the stories we tell ourselves when it comes to telling our work, we make these ideas so massive in our head. And from, from my experience of telling people, they don't care. And by that, I mean, there's no, like, it's none of their business and and they treat it as such, at least every experience that I've had, you know, anybody that I got myself so worked up, Oh my God, I can't tell or blah, blah, blah. And when you tell it's like the most freeing, I don't, I don't know. It was very empowering to do that and it's really freeing I've never had a negative experience but I think if I did have a negative experience when I told them that then I'd have had to have questioned whether I'm in the right place anyway that's what I think looking back now like well if they weren't going to accept it then then I'm not in the right place am I I need to think about doing something different um but they did accept it and it was you know it was wonderful love that okay I'm going to bounce randomly because this I have like a whole bunch of little notes over here. Um, you said something 
that was interesting about your relationship with your friends. So mm-hmm. you said that you had friends that since you were 11, but if your journey has been anything like mine, and I think you've said it, like you're getting to find the real true self. Once you remove the gambling, once you remove the drinking, who we are underneath is different in a lot of ways. So how is it that you're maintaining those friendships? Did you have friendships that fell away when you started evolving and, and became clean? Like, how do you handle if your friends are drinkers? Can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, I mean, I'm really lucky when I talk about these friends, these are like probably five really close friends I had from school. I had loads of others as well, loads of others. But it got to a place where it was too much to cope with, really. So I did let people drift because I wasn't able to continue to maintain all the relationships that I had and and in some respects that's a shame because some of those people were real good friends and they weren't like drinking acquaintances or anything like that I was lucky that I didn't really have that because I either went out with friends or I drank in isolation or again I always gambled in isolation so I didn't lose that kind of stuff but these people because I've known them since I was 11 I'd known them before I started drinking all right it was only three years before um, but then when we were 14, we weren't drinking daily. Do you know what I mean? We were at school together. We spent time together. We knew each other when we were younger. Even though I felt uncomfortable, like they knew me. But what's nice now is I share about how I feel. So I shared with them yesterday, actually, about ADHD stuff. And they're like, wow, that's really interesting. But then they tell me how their minds work instead. So it's like they they engage with it. I think that's the nice thing. And yeah, I mean, we used to just go to the pub. That's what we used to do. Or if we went to an event, it was a sporting event where there was alcohol available all day long, all the time. But since I've come into recovery, we've started doing other things. So when we, because we live in different places now anyway, so we have to meet up. And like, so two examples, uh, two years ago, we met up in London. And rather than just going to the pub, we went and did kayaking for a couple of hours first. And then we had a pub stop and then we did some more kayaking. And then, yeah, we went to the pub for the evening and that. But I'm really comfortable with that because they all know my situation. Um, now, I wouldn't go and sit in a casino, mind you, but I, I'm very happy to sit in a pub because actually there's a lot more to a pub than alcohol, I think. Um, drink too much coffee or too much fizzy drink or whatever, but that's all right. But equally, if I'm uncomfortable at that point, I can say I'm going to go. And then the next year we did something very similar, but we went and played foot golf. So like golf with football, so you're kicking it rather than hitting it with a golf club. Um, and we did that for a few hours before we then went to the pub. But they were going to be in the pub longer that day. And do you know what? I just said, I'm going to be leaving at this time in the afternoon. You guys crack on. Perfect. You know, and I can say that because they're my friends. And, and yeah, it's lovely. They're so supportive. And it does make me laugh when you first tell them and then they're all out drunk in the pub. And then one at a time, they creep up to you to tell you something in there in your ear about, oh, here's the thing that I'm worried about at the moment. I'm like, good, well, I'm glad you're telling me because they probably wouldn't have told the others until I told them about how I'd gone through this stuff. So I think it's brought us a lot closer together. We now probably understand each other more than we did and we're doing more stuff together that probably strengthens our friendship even over all these years rather than just sitting there getting drunk (laughs) all the time. So, yeah. I love that you were able to keep your people. I'm finding that the conversations and the connections are a whole different level of sincere or deep, or it's just not superficial and it does change. And kudos to you for being the ambassador in your circle. You keep saying, and I want people to understand this, my audience, like especially the ones who are afraid to share or come out or whatever. So I'm driving home these couple points. 
but we all have that chance to be an ambassador and we don't know who's struggling with something that they're keeping on the inside. Um, so to be an open door and be like, Hey, it's okay. We're all broken in our own freaking ways. Maybe that's not a choice word, but we all got our own stuff. So thank you for yeah, and on that, that as well. Right. Really quickly. Like just because I've been in recovery for four years, doesn't mean I'm good. Do you know what I mean? Like every day is different. So what I like is the more people who are out there chatting, the more people I can go and talk to when I'm having a hard day. Cause yeah, like this is all reciprocal, isn't it? Like, yeah, you can be the ambassador, but equally sometimes you need to go and ask for help yourself. And, and I love that I can do that now. That's so important. Until I found recovery, I couldn't ask for help. I couldn't listen properly. I couldn't ask. And it's brought on all these skills. And I suppose that's the other thing I didn't mention. I've made loads of friends in recovery now as well, which, uh, you know, so I've probably got more friends than I had before when I said I couldn't maintain them all. <laughs> that's because like recovery friends is a different it's a different thing, you know. You don't necessarily have to see each other so often, or just when you do, you've got something in common all the time. Um, and yeah, it's just wonderful. Oh, I like that. So, other than 12 step, what are some other strategies that you use in recovery? Yeah, so for me, it's been, well, the first thing was 12 step. Obviously, like I said, I'm a GAAA person, so I love that. But I'm, I appreciate this so much more. Um, and for me, it then went to blogs. Like I say, I started blogging as well. So reading others and writing my own. And then obviously podcasts. Um, by doing a podcast, I started listening to podcasts. I didn't necessarily listen to many before I started doing my own. And there's so many good ones out there. And 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 it's wonderful. And like you say, it's a community. It's about helping people. So it's so nice. And I always say it's about recovery. It's so nice not to be in competition with anybody. Like no matter where you go in life, I think there's always competition other than in recovery. Because even if I'm, a, if I'm a playing for a sports team, there's always somebody else. You can all be friends. But there's always somebody else who wants your position. So there's always somebody who's trying to have that place, even when you're friendly. It doesn't work like that in recovery. Everybody just wants to be there to help each other. And be helped when they need it as well, which is just like a, a really special thing. So, yeah, podcasts were great. Um, some people, I think, like to use them as a gateway into recovery. And I like that about them. There weren't that many around, I don't believe, when I was looking for recovery. And if I'd, if there were some, I would have heard other people talking and realised I wasn't alone. That's why I love them so much, because people think I'm not alone. Now, maybe I will reach out and ask for help rather than having to ask for help without realising there's other people there. Um, in the position who can be empathetic so I think that's really important but then it was just about um, just talking you know it's always been about being honest for me being honest is so important if I'm honest um, I think you know as long as I tell people how I'm feeling I will never get to that first drink or that first bet because I think lying would lead me there I know that when I was drinking and gambling I was lying so therefore, if I can make sure I'm having an honest day then I will not get to that place and that means telling people when I feel bad telling people when I'm low, telling people actually when I'm high, because as I said earlier on, that's I would knock myself down. So I need to be comfortable in telling people that stuff, which I do. But then, yeah, as well as the podcast, it was about starting um, TalkGen, as it was at the time, now Gambling Education Network, which is a charity that I'm a trustee for. I just really wanted to get involved with um, kind of education, research and change in the UK around, around gambling, uh, trying to... Um, kind of talk to medical students and things like that about gambling and getting in, that into their um, education, uh, stuff like that, which is what we're doing. We've got a gambling harm prevention program at the moment where we um, go out to schools and it's, it's a diverse communities one. Um, so we've What's got a film as well, again, actually. Chris? 
What's the name of the nonprofit? Uh, yeah, so we're called Gambling Education Network. And we've got this program called Preventing Gambling Harms in Diverse Communities. So we give um, free workshops, basically, to, to children between the ages of 14 and 24. Well, 24 aren't children. Although, interestingly, your brain develops to your 25. So that brings another interesting question. You know, should people be able to gamble at 18 when your brain is still developing up to 25? Maybe not. But, you know, that is an interesting question, maybe, to to be floated don't know but but yeah so yeah it's great being out educating people we've launched a film and i love this i'd love people to go and watch it called do it for her it's on um a it's on a youtube channel called million youth media and it follows a young muslim uh, guy called bilal through his um gambling addiction basically through becoming addicted and what happens to him further down. It doesn't bring it to the very end. You know, it's a bit of drama, so it's really good. And I'd like people to look at it, watch it, talk to friends and family about it. But we use it as part of our education programme as well. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And the guy who acted on it, he'd suffered harm himself through gambling. So it's like you can just see it in his eyes. You know, you think he's not acting there. That's him because he's been in that situation himself and yeah it's just it's great and an organization called fully focused put it together for us we've got a lot of youth involvement in it so the youth um basically saying yeah this is what we want to see in a film and stuff and we made sure we built in all the lived experience stuff and yeah i love it i mean i'm so proud of it and and yeah so i'm a trustee of gambling education network we're bringing in some more trustees now and the plan is to appoint a ceo soon so because obviously I do this all on the side of my actual job, which is a commercial manager at Transport for London in the, in the UK. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Um, yeah, I'll definitely put that everywhere I can and promote that for you. Um, it's very interesting and I like what you're doing. And that was one of the things that you mentioned that I think we wanted to circle back to. Is there anything that you want to share that I haven't asked about, Chris? Uh, I don't know, really. I mean, for me, it's just about, you know, knowing that all bets are off is out there, you know, for people to come and listen um, and then reach out to us if they, if they want to ask us any questions. I think that's the beautiful thing about uh, people who are podcasting stuff. It's just we're just there because we're one of you and, you know, reach out, um, come and ask us questions. If you want some help, come and ask us and we'll, we'll, we'll do our Oh, no. our darndest to give you the support that you need or that you want and that's what it's about and yeah just not really I'm just you know life what I like to say is life is manageable now going back to a 12-step thing I know this isn't about 12 steps but the first step talks about life being unmanageable and then I think when I first went to recovery I thought oh this is terrible I want everything to be perfect but actually the steps talk about it becoming manageable and is my life manageable today yes it is so brilliant it's hard some days really goddamn hard and some days it isn't but is it manageable it is manageable because i've learned through you know talking to other people building networks communicating listening i've, I've got the tools now to deal with the difficult days as well as the good ones and so if i have a manageable life which i use to make a difference in areas that i want to make a difference in you know i couldn't ask for more than that really I love it. I love it. What a high note to, to end on as well. So thank you so much for being here, Chris. This was, this was better than I even expected. I knew it was going to be good, but you took us down a lot of uh, great roads that I know people need to hear about. 
So all bets are off. Five seasons? You're on your fifth season? Is that what you said? Yeah, fifth season is being recorded. We've only done one. We've taken ages. We've done one recording so far. We've got two booked in the next two weeks, and we've got about three or four just waiting to come on board. And then once we've probably got half a season recorded, we're going to then release our first episode. Um, So I reckon sometime in March. Perfect. But we've still got four seasons there to listen to for now. Yeah, 48 episodes is a lot to consume. So I think that that's definitely something that can keep people who are just discovering your show busy. So goodbye, Chris, and thank you. Thanks, Bobby. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much for having me.